You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, for the first time in roughly 20 weeks or so that I'm not telling you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians, but we are now in 2 Peter this morning, and uh, we may revisit 2 Peter throughout our time in this new series, but with this series taking the different shape, you know, in uh, our Glorious Grace series, we are obviously moving through one single book, so we had kind of a, a camping place, a place where we came to every Sunday. With this series being a doctrinal series, we'll be in uh, different places throughout God's Word in our time in this series, but this morning... I just felt this was the, the best place for us to begin this series. So 2 Peter chapter 1, hopefully you picked up a outline on your way in this morning. That'll be our guide through God's Word. That The answers to the outline will be on the screen behind me. But as I said, and as I've kind of noted for the last several weeks, this series, the focus of this series is Sola Scriptura. And I, I kind of the, as a secondary title to that, I put a, a lamp shining in a dark place. You'll see exactly where that comes from here in just a little bit. But 486 years ago, a man named William Tyndale was burned at the stake in front of a crowd. 486 years ago. The anniversary of that event was just this last Thursday. It was a rather cruel and humiliating punishment, but for what? What was his crime? What did William Tyndale do to deserve being burned at the stake in front of a crowd? In the words of the man whose job it was to find Tyndale, he said this, I always find him singing one note. And Tyndale's one note that he always sang, his crime of punishment, the reason for his being burned at the stake, was that he desired that the king of England would endorse a Bible to be printed in a common speech so that all may read it, know it, and live by it. This was Tyndale's crime. This was his one note that he always sung. The king refused, so Tyndale produced it himself. At the risk of his own life, in 1526, Tyndale produced 3,000 copies of God's Word and smuggled them into England in bundles of clothes. All of this was fueled by Tyndale's conviction that all people needed to know the truth of God's Word, which lay hidden behind the curtain of Latin and the church's system of penance and works. This truth is that we are helpless sinners and that in Christ, God provided salvation by grace through faith. This was Tyndale's passion, that people read this for themselves in God's word and be able to read it in their own language and have their own copy of God's word to be able to read that from and to know for themselves the truth of the gospel. But where do we learn of such truth? Where, where do we go to have our stony hearts chiseled away at? Where is that stream beside which we can grow deep roots of dependence? Where do we learn of the good news of the gospel which pierces our hearts and brings us to saving faith in Christ? Where do we learn all of these things? Where has God given revelation and knowledge of himself and of salvation? 
He's given it to us in his word. This is why Tyndale was so passionate about this, that he would risk his life to produce a copy of the Bible that he translated himself so that people could know it. In Tyndale's own words, this was what he said. In Christ, God loved us, his elect and chosen, before the world began and reserved us unto the knowledge of his son and of his holy gospel. And when the gospel is preached to us, it openeth our hearts and giveth us grace to believe and putteth the spirit of Christ in us and we know him as our father most merciful and consent to the law and love it outwardly or inwardly in our heart and desire to fulfill it and sorrow because we do not. This was Tyndale's passion. This was the passion that moved the reformers. It was sola scriptura. I want to give you some warning now that these first two sermons in this series will lay a lot of groundwork for propelling us through the rest of the series. But in order for us to affirm God's word as authoritative, we must affirm that it is indeed God's word. Before we can affirm that the Bible is indeed God's word, we must start with what the Bible proclaims about itself. And that will be the overarching theme, the overarching question which will guide our focus in this series is what does the Bible proclaim about itself? Because the only judge that we have, the only standard by which we can judge Scripture is Scripture. So as we move forward, as we, uh, I want us to corporately, as a church family, peer into the depths of God's word and find that life-giving spring which sufficiently supplies us with all we need. I'm going to point us, time to time as I already have, to some incredible reformers and their harrowing testimonies and remarkable quotes of God's word and how they helped shape our doctrine However, the main thing I want us, all of us, to see is not just what these reformers stood for and the incredible things they said and did, but that they took their stand because of what God's Word proclaims about itself. And so today, my aim is for us to answer two main questions to start this series. And I'm going to continue to refer back to these questions as we move through this series, but you can see those two questions on your outlines there. What does sola scriptura mean and why is it relevant today? The reason for the first question is obvious. On the one hand, we want to make sure that those who do not have a knowledge of the sufficiency of God's word would come to know of the sufficiency of God's word. And then on the other hand, we want to make sure that those of us who know of sola scriptura and who believe God's word to be God's word, believe scripture to be God's word, we want to make sure that we're all on the same level ground, that we all know what we're meaning when we make that statement. Thus giving us a solid understanding moving forward in this series. Sadly, I think the more popular question, which we might be tempted to ask, is that second one. Why is this relevant today? It can too often be assumed that just because someone is a Christian, 
or they proclaim to be Christian, that they affirm that the Bible is God's Word. They might say to themselves, or maybe you kind of pondered this, isn't this settled doctrine with just a fancy Latin name? Of course the Bible is God's Word. Everyone knows the Bible is God's Word. So why do we need to spend six plus weeks talking about it? Well, it's one thing to affirm that the Bible is God's Word, but it is altogether different to affirm that Scripture alone is the all-sufficient Word of God. And that's what we're going to see that Scripture proclaims about itself as we move forward in this series. I want to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 are our text this morning. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, as we read here the truths of your word, and we declare praise be to your name for giving us your word, pray, God, that you would be with us in this undertaking of these next several weeks of focusing on this one doctrine, but this one doctrine which is so crucial. Pray that you would move our hearts to repentance, move our hearts in praise of your grace to make yourself known to us through your word, and move us to treasure your word as our foremost authority in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So in his first letter, the apostle Peter wrote to believers who were experiencing extreme persecution as a result of their isolation. If you're joining us on Wednesday nights for our prayer times, then you know this well. We looked at 1 Peter just this last Wednesday. In his second letter, which is what we just read, Peter now writes to what is likely the same audience, though this is a sometime later. But Peter writes this second letter very shortly before his own persecuted death at the hands of Emperor Nero. So this is the context. So in the first context, Peter's writing to encourage and embolden the church to, to look to Christ as their anchor, to look to Christ as the one reason for their living hope, to look to the resurrection. 
And now Peter writes with this focus. He wants the believers to fix their eyes, continually fix their eyes on Christ, yes. But what does Peter focus here in the second letter? He reminds them to hold fast to what he taught them so as to refute and rebuke false teachers while remaining in steadfast obedience to the gospel. And what did he teach them? What, what did he instruct them as he was with them or in his first letter? Peter taught them the whole counsel of Scripture and the importance of relying on Scripture alone as our all-sufficient authority in all things. Peter begins this, if you go back, verse 3 here of chapter 1. Just to kind of give us some context leading into our text for this morning. So we have our, our greeting and our introduction. And then verse 3, we read this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So this is an incredible statement that God in his power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But through what? Well, as we continue sentence there, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So did you catch Peter's emphasis there? That God has given us, through his power, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything necessary for life. Everything necessary to be made new. To be sanctified. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So knowledge. Where do we Gain knowledge. Be thinking of that, right? So by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Well, where do we read of God's promises that he has made known to man? We continue, you kind of move down there. So verse 5, Peter begins to give this, for this reason, you know, make every effort. And he gives this statement, this incredible statement of sanctification, of how God is at work in our lives to make us holy. Uh, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, right? And knowledge with self-control. So he moves on through this incredible list. And we come to verse 8. For if these qualities, so all the qualities that he just listed there in verses 5 through 7, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not just the knowledge. We, we, we looked at this scripture several weeks back on a Wednesday night, but we prayed through this. But not just the knowledge that puffs up and that fills your head and gives you this great insight and wisdom and allows you to boast in your own abilities, but a knowledge that is leading you to deeper dependence on God's grace and a knowledge which is moving your feet in obedience. That type of knowledge, he says... If, it's, if these qualities are yours in increasing measure, they keep you from being, having an ineffective, unfruitful faith. So, we continue. So, he continues on there. Skip down to verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So you know them. You know, I have taught these things to you. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So although you know them, as long as I'm living, Peter's getting ready. He knows he's getting ready to die at the hands of the emperor. I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so Peter's emphasis here is on, I've taught you this. I've pointed you to God's word, God's promises. He's given us all things necessary in the knowledge of him. Where do we gain knowledge of him? Where do we read God's promises? His word. Well, for Peter at this time, as he's preaching to a crowd in which our New Testament has not yet taken shape, he's given his own testimony, firsthand testimony of Christ, and he's also pointing to the Old Testament. To Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets as as indication of God's promises for what he has fulfilled in Christ. And there's that context that then leads us to verse 16. So let's read that again. Our text for this morning. For, now it doesn't have there at the beginning of it, but it, it carries with it the same necessary step of biblical interpretation. It's, it's tying this to what he said before. This is the reason for, for this, right? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well So Peter bears witness to Christ's deity, bears witness, his testimony to seeing these things. This is similar to what we read Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He makes this similar statement to the church at Corinth. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of, of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So they're both giving the same sentiment that it is not about my wise words. It's not about this cleverly devised stories that I can come up with, right? Because that would detract from the cross of Christ. It's not with eloquent wisdom that I came to you, but I came to you to preach the gospel. So what was the source? Where did they teach them, Peter and Paul and John? Where did they point the audiences that they were preaching to? Where did they point them? Just as Jesus led the disciples through the scriptures from Moses and all the prophets, showing them everything concerning himself, this is the very thing that the early church taught as as the gospel spread, showing people how God had given revelation of himself through his word, showing that Christ was the fulfillment of the promises that God had given, was the fulfillment of all that God had been doing providentially throughout history. Peter wants to, as he says, we made known. We were eyewitnesses. In other words, we made known to you what was made known to us. Peter wants to refute the claims of his opponents. Notice there what he says. 
we did not follow cleverly devised myths, right? He wants to refute the claims of his opponents that he's simply teaching myths that were carefully concocted and conjured. In doing so, he wants to remind them of the truth of God's word that he taught when they first believed the gospel. See, the word myth there, it's the same word used to describe the tales of the Greek gods. Likely meaning that Peter's opponents are simply trying to classify Peter's testimony of Christ in the same category as the stories of Apollo and Zeus. So Peter appeals to Scripture's authority. So he points to God's promises, as we saw there back in verse 3 and 4. Peter appeals to Scripture's authority and to God's promises over his own words or cleverly devised myths. So what does sola scriptura mean? We need to make sure we have a firm understanding of that as we move forward. Martin Luther made this statement. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils. For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to God against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So what does sola scriptura mean? Well, as Luther stated there, and as he was defining there, sola scriptura simply means scripture alone. It is Latin for Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura is that doctrine which spurred forth the Protestant Reformation. It is that doctrine on which all the other solas are built. It is that doctrine which states that God's Word alone is our final authority in all things. Not the Pope, not a priest, not some other person or, or worldly authority, but God's word stands as our final authority over all things. Now, what Sola Scriptura does not say is that Scripture is the only authority, but that it is our final authority. God's word alone is our final authority. So it's not saying that Scripture is our only authority in the sense that it contains all information that we need, because you won't learn how to do a triple bypass in Leviticus, right? Galatians does not instruct us on how to have a better golf swing. If it did, my game would be much better than it is, right? Scripture itself tells us that there are authorities which God has ordained for their design purposes, such as governmental authorities, church authorities, pastoral authorities. But sola scriptura does not deny the existence of other authorities. It rightly sets God's word as the final authority over all things. Meaning that if there be an authority that contradicts the truth of Scripture, it is that earthly authority which has erred, not Scripture. That was the statement that, that Luther was getting to there. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, we read this on the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence 
do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. So that's to say that we have natural revelation in nature, that God has made himself known in creation, that, that we can have these other things in which we can know God. So as to leave men unexcusable, yet, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world. Again, that's the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So this is what we hold to. That God's word is that only all alone sufficient thing which gives us knowledge of God. We did not come to you preaching cleverly devised myths. We made known, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is what Peter was declaring to his audience. What I preached to you was not some myth made from the mind of man. What I preached to you was not some cleverly put together story that lines up with the Old Testament. What I preached to you was the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory, we saw that ourselves. When God said... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is what God has promised from eternity. Why is sola scriptura still relevant today? Why is it still relevant today? Because the Bible alone is the unchanging revelation of God's truth. And as such, we must hold tightly to that truth especially in a world that is increasingly adverse to the idea of absolute truth. And so since God's word and his truth are unchanging, we must hold to those doctrine, that doctrine which binds us to the conviction that God's truth and God's truth alone have final authority in our lives. I want to show you some charts and statistics which are as equally saddening as they are appalling. You can find all of what I'm about to show you throughout the rest of this morning's sermon. You can find some of these, you can find all of these at thestateoftheology.com. This was a ministry of Ligonier Ministries put out these findings from surveys which they held. When asked to respond to the statement, and this was the statement, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 53% of American evangelicals stated that they agree. Now, don't, don't miss 
who was surveyed here. American evangelicals. This wasn't just Americans. This wasn't just people, just random people grabbed off the street. Specifically, American evangelicals stated that they, 53% of them, stated that they agree with the statement that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Too often, church, we allow things, doctrines, theological statements like sola scriptura to go on assumed rather than clearly defined, catechized, and held dearly and tightly. That's what can lead to a shift like this. Because as you look at that chart, you can see as the year goes on, every two years, that right side grew greater. This can often cause all manner, when we don't, when we allow these things to go on assumed and, and just kind of loosely held and, and we think, yeah, sure, everybody knows that the Bible is God's word. When we allow that to happen, this can cause all manner of error, confusion, false teaching, and heresy. For instance, one can proclaim that they believe the Bible to be God's word, yet then go on to twist God's word to mean whatever they need it or want it to mean. These types of false teaching can be blatant and obvious or subtle and cunning. So how do we tell? Well, as, I, as I already said, we can only judge Scripture against itself. This is the point of biblical interpretation. Peter, having lived with Jesus himself, walked with Jesus, had authority to speak as an apostle, he makes this statement that what I came preaching to you was not clearly devised myths. Don't get it twisted. But I saw the fulfillment of the promises that I saw and taught to you in God's word. As we continue reading verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. When Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain of transfiguration, they see Jesus in his glory, and they walk with Jesus and hear Jesus teach and have firsthand account of him being the fulfillment of God's word. We see that the Bible contains the historical, this is the next point, the Bible contains the historical reality of God making himself known. Because you notice that the big statement there is that they said that they agreed that the Bible contained myths and stories, but was not literally true. But what Peter clearly believed, what he wanted the church to clearly believe, was that it was literally true and historical fact. The Bible contains the historical reality of God making himself known. It is so crucial for us to notice and understand how the Bible presents itself. And again, that's kind of the main overarching theme and our goal as we move throughout Scripture in this series is to see what does the Bible proclaim about itself? Peter wants his audience to know that what he pointed to in God's word and testified of his own experience with Christ was verifiably real. The problem is fewer and fewer people are clinging to this. 
because the church has too often allowed this to just be an assumed knowledge rather than a tightly held doctrine. In that same survey, American evangelicals responded to this statement. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Sadly, 38% agree. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Sadly, only 38% agree. Responding to that statement, Jesus, there's another, they also said, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% agreed. Do you see why Sola Scriptura is still relevant today, church? You see why it must not be some assumed knowledge or thing that we take for granted, but a tightly held doctrine? When we read, and God created, that literally means God created. When we read that God led the children of Israel with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, that is a historical record of God's providential purposes being lived out. Not a myth to, for us to find out, well, how do I fit into that? Or what is, how, does that, how does that help me in my life? What is my pillar of fire and my cloud? Well, it's God's word. It's the same one that it was for them, right? What do we not have, what we do not have here in our hands, in our laps, on our phones, however you're looking at God's word this morning, what we do not have here is a collection of allegories, myths, and poems for us to point to some wholesome, deeper truths. That, yeah, they help us, they, they help us to feel good, and they give us stories that we can, can find ourselves in. Like, like, I'm David, and where's my Goliath in this life? This is not the point of God's Word. We believe that the Bible is the literal word of God because that is what the Bible says about itself. Continue reading there. Verse 19. Peter points to this same truth. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So until the day comes when Christ returns as I preach to you. Not with cleverly devised myths, but as I preach to you what I saw for myself, what we've seen in scripture. We have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. What more fully confirmed it? The testimony of Christ and them seeing him for himself. The fulfillment of the prophetic word. For Peter, the word of God, or the prophetic word as he refers to here, was already fully confirmed, but it was already fully confirmed to be the unchanging revelation of God's truth. What Peter is pointing to is the truth that the Bible is the one complete, unified message of God's redemptive purpose. So what Peter is saying is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus only further solidified what was already stated, prophesied, and written about him in Scripture. 
we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And what does he say? To which you would do well to pay attention. This is, a, this is essentially, not literally, but essentially his deathbed statement. He's himself said, I'm getting ready to go die at the hands of Caesar here. And I, with my last breath, I want to remind you of this. Hold true to God's word. You would do well to pay attention. As to what? As a lamp shining in a dark place. God's word is that all-giving light that is necessary. It is crucial for us. It is our all-sufficient light for, to give us a, a clearly lit path through this dark and dying world. It is not enough to say that these men, accurate and well-intentioned as they were, recorded God's word. But for Peter, it is clear that this was the providential work of the Holy Spirit, recording the exact words, knowledge, and information, and details that God further, God the Father intended. Peter wants it to be clear that God was acting in this process. God was acting. He was at work here. There's not just cleverly devised myths by men. Why is it more fully confirmed? Because they experience it for themselves and the life, death, resurrection, and teachings of Christ. And where did Christ point them? To Moses and the prophets. To God's word. You see, the Bible alone is sufficient to interpret itself. J.I. Packer, making a similar statement, stated this, Scripture alone is competent to judge our doctrine of Scripture. Scripture alone is competent to judge our doctrine of Scripture. As we see Peter stating for us, Scripture is that lamp shining in a dark place, illuminating our path forward, and is the only thing which allows us to, to see. It is that all-sufficient thing which God has given us by His power that pertain to life and godliness and knowledge of Him. The Bible is sufficient to fulfill the work of God in the hearts of His people. That's what else we see here. That the Bible is sufficient to fill the work, fulfill the work of God in the hearts of his people. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until that day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So until that time has been complete, the Bible is your light forward, church, is Peter's statement. And is working in you to accomplish all that, those statements of sanctification, of, of all these qualities, which he said are to be yours increasing measure. The Bible is sufficient to fulfill the work of God in the hearts of his people. In other words, if the lamp of Scripture, church, does not illuminate the path, then we must take serious caution and we must course correct our path. And so, that means we must also use the lamp of Scripture to judge our path. Like, is the path we're on, have we been just mindlessly and blindly following along that path on our own? 
Or is it well lit and clearly marked by God's word? As we see, this is what Peter continues to point to, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all. So that's, he's continuing the sentence there, just to make sure we're kind of tracking along. Uh, until the day dawns, the morning stars arise in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God, spoken from God, that the people of God may know the will of God and walk in obedience to it. As we think back on those surveys, I want to remind you, these are American evangelicals. These are our friends, our co-workers, the people we play ball with, the people we share meals with, the people we do life with. These are the people that, that tell us that, that, that they too are believers. They too believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, what, does that, what does that mean to you? Why is it important? Why is sola scriptura still relevant today? Because if we grow complacent, we drift. If we grow complacent, we drift. If we stop following the illumination which Scripture provides, we begin walking in darkness. Why is sola scriptura relevant for us to preach on, cling to, and emphasize today? Because we need it just as much now as Peter did in his day. As Martin Luther, as Wycliffe, we need it just as much now as we ever did. Because the Bible is the unchanging truth of God, which is our sole authority in this life. Now, I'm excited to continue to delve into this, uh, this, this doctrine and for us to see continually that this is what God's word proclaims of itself. So let's pray this morning, church, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you. And we love your word. Because it is our lamp shining in a dark place. It illuminates our path forward. Forgive us, Father, when we do not follow that light, but we fumble in darkness when we pursue our own course. Continually lead us back to the right path, the narrow path, by the light of your word. Give us a passion and a hunger for your word that we may grow deep roots next to that stream so we have a constant source of knowledge and wisdom and, and godliness, a constant source on how you are sanctifying us and how you call us to make your gospel known because it is your word and your word alone which penetrates the heart of man and reveals knowledge of yourself. So help us to walk in obedience to it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.